0: Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. I'm Vince Citro, and I'll be your host for today's discussion. I'm here with Mark Mukasey, who is a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers and the founding partner of the Mukasey Frenchman Law Firm in New York. Mark graduated from Dartmouth College and went on to graduate cum laude from the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. He primarily practices criminal defense and also works on civil matters. Mark has defended a wide range of clients, including a Navy SEAL accused of murder, Halliburton in the Deepwater Horizon disaster, and former CEO Trevor Milton, among others. Mark grew up the son of a well-known former federal judge and U.S. attorney general and forged his own way in the profession, a federal law clerk, Securities and Exchange Commission trial attorney, assistant U.S. attorney, international law firm leader, and now at his own firm that has been described as the tip of the spear for criminal and civil trial work. Perhaps most importantly, Mark is expecting his first child any day now. So, Mark, thank you for taking the time to join us today for this discussion.
1: It's my pleasure. And if only you could prep for a child the way you can prep for a trial, I'd be a lot better off. But this time I got to wing it. True for all of us, but
0: I'm sure you're going to do great. It's fair to say that you're a trial lawyer. How did you find that trial work was right for you?
1: When I was in law school, I took a class that was taught by Barry Sheck, who went on to fame and perhaps notoriety as a member of O.J. Simpson's Dream Team. He put me in the courtroom for the first time as a third year in law school, representing under his supervision, indigent defendants in the New York State criminal justice system. And uh, my first client, I sat down with and through a plate glass window, he'd been arrested and told him I was a law student and I was going to try my hardest for him under the supervision of my professor. And I think he was in shock having been arrested and then getting a 21-year-old kid as his lawyer. But I met his father in the back of the courtroom and he said, my son, Henry, He's a good boy. He's a really good boy. Please take care of him. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was a student and probably a cocky son of a gun at the time. And Barry Scheck put me in that position. And I realized what is a higher calling than being in the courtroom representing your side, representing the person, the entity? The government, whatever it is that you think is a good boy, that that someone needs you to take care of, and that's what gave me the kick in the butt to uh, to learn how to try cases.
0: There are a lot of different types of trial lawyers; those who try cases in commercial contexts or real estate or antitrust. But you have chosen to focus the lion's share of your career in criminal law. There's a Another fellow in the college in Canada, a renowned criminal defense lawyer, Marie Heinen, and in her book, she she describes how criminal law takes a piece of you, and it wasn't necessarily in a complimentary way. It changes you both for the good and the worse. What about criminal law specifically called to you, and how do you find that it has changed you for the better or for the worse?
1: That's a great quote. I am not the smartest guy out there, and I'm certainly not the most skilled, but I will work harder than the next guy, and I will die on the treadmill before I get off if the other guy is still on. And old trial work requires, in my opinion, that kind of effort. Uh, With respect to criminal work, I find criminal work to be patriotic, no matter which side you're on, you are upholding the constitution, but I also find it to be obviously vital. I find it to be clean in the sense that at the end of the day, who's the winner and who's the loser and how you did? There is a very clear scorecard. And I feel pressure every time I'm on trial, but with respect to criminal trials, it's heightened for me. And that pressure, and I tell the young lawyers that I work with, I tell anybody that I work with, that pressure is a privilege. It's a privilege to be asked by somebody to defend them at the most critical, painful moment of their lives. It was a privilege to be asked by the United States when I was on the government side To represent its interests in critical, important cases. So criminal law to me is clean. You might hear people say it's a dirty business. It's not. It's a clean business in the sense that you know where you stand, you know what you have to do, and whether you did it or not, at the end of the day. I also find that the criminal bar is a tight-knit one, there's a lot less infighting among members of the bar when when life and liberty is really at stake. You don't necessarily argue with your adversary about how many pages his brief is going to be or whether he needs five more minutes to conduct the deposition or we, re- we need to run to the magistrate judge about this or that. I think criminal lawyers tend to see what's important and What may be less important, given the vital nature of the business?
0: So I want to go back to early in your career. After your third year of law school, you started trying cases first for the SEC as a trial lawyer, and then, as you mentioned, for the United States as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. I find those early years of a career, whether you're at the SEC or the you know, at Saturno's office, everyone makes a misstep and that misstep they carry with them as a lesson that they harness and they never forget and use throughout their career. Do you have one of those memories that was a lesson that you harness? And if so, talk to us about how you walked through it when it happened and what it means for you today to have
1: survived it. I'll tell you two, two lessons The first one I learned on my first day in the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is if your writing is not strong and your briefs are not good, you will start your trial, at least with respect to the judge, probably with one foot in the hole. So the notion that there's some separation between written work and oral work, I think is somewhat exaggerated. I think you can't be a great trial lawyer without understanding how to write out an argument as well in a brief. And I think being a trial lawyer who sees the big picture helps you in your written advocacy. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is a little more comical. When I was trying cases for the government, we had the facts on our side, we had the law on our side, and you asked a bunch of direct examination questions to the FBI agent or the NYPD police officer or the eyewitness, and you got the answers that generally you expected. And you didn't have to do a whole lot of screaming and yelling. And I was trying a case that involved cocaine transactions probably when I was in my fifth or sixth year in the government, and the defense lawyer who I don't think could have told you one rule of evidence or one rule of procedure, probably couldn't have named the statute that the client was charged under. He stood up in front of the jury and he opened a vein and he basically bled his guts out to that jury. And he talked about his parents and his grandparents emigrating to America and He practically wrapped himself in the American flag in the courtroom, and I'm pretty sure he brought himself to tears. Now, as a a young assistant U.S. attorney wearing a boring tie and a cheap suit, I thought to myself as I was listening to his summation, it looks like this guy cares more than I care. It looks like he's really into this, and he really believes his own baloney. I'm not saying that's the way to try a case, if you're a defense lawyer or really a lawyer at all. But what I learned from that was, you better show that jury that you care. You better connect in an emotional way, not just a legal or factual way. I've carried that through every trial that I've ever done since then.
0: We'll get through to some other parts of your career. You try cases all over the country. How do you show that authenticity to jurors in California versus jurors in New York versus jurors in Arkansas, very different parts
1: of the country? How do you show that? You got to know your audience. Jurors are smart. Everybody knows that. They're way smarter now, I think, than they've ever been before. They see through fake emotion. They know about themes in your presentation. They don't want a little bumper sticker. That's false. They demand excellence. I think they they demand a succinct, pithy presentation. Pew, we're dealing with jurors today with probably shorter attention spans than Clarence Darrow was dealing with when he would give eight or 10 or 12 hour summations. You got to know your audience people always say you have to know your judge, but you have to know your audience. And if you don't, I think there's nothing wrong with saying you don't. In the Gallagher Navy SEAL trial that you mentioned, I stood up in the courtroom every day wearing a Navy blue suit and a white shirt and a tie, clearly a civilian in a courtroom filled with military members and JAG lawyers and a military judge and a jury full of Marines and Naval officers, I wasn't going to pretend to be like them. I couldn't. Myself and the other civilian lawyers stuck out like sore thumbs. And in the part of the summation that I did, I, we said that. I said, I can't purport to know what you guys know or have been where you guys have been And even with respect to those witnesses that I cross-examined, I'm not cross-examining them because I don't like them or I disrespect them. We respect the service of everybody here who's fought for our country. In terms of relating to jurors, if you're a fish out of water, tell them you are and tell them you respect where they are or where they came from. But don't try to bullshit them because you can't it sounds like
0: what I'm hearing you saying is that authenticity is important in your presentation at
1: trial. If you don't have authenticity, you don't have anything. One of the hardest parts of preparing for trial for me is finding a way to connect that is authentic, because jurors smell malarkey from a mile away. And when we sit, in my office and toss around ideas and themes and theories and how we're going to open and how we're going to carry that through the crosses and how we're going to close, we put ideas up on a whiteboard. We put ideas to the assistants and the paralegals and the interns to see what smacks of realness and what is real and what smells like we're trying to sell them a bill of goods.
0: there's a huge gap between finishing your time in the government and where you are today. So let's go back to you leaving the Southern District of New York. At that point, you had worked as a law clerk in the Eastern District of New York. You had worked at the SEC, of course, for DOJ as well. And you went to a larger firm, really an international firm, rather go right to the path that you're on now. Walk us through that decision and how you wrestled with it at all.
1: So I think what I'm saying is accurate may just be my perception, but at the time, which was 2005 or so, not many former assistant U.S. attorneys left the government, obviously a big safe institution, and went out on their own to throw out an entrepreneurial shingle with no safety net. So the natural move, at least in New York at the time, was to go to a big firm. But I didn't want to go to a big firm where I would be answering to a committee of people who don't know what it's like to be in a courtroom or the pressure of a verdict. I didn't want to go to a law firm where there were 32 people ahead of me, seniority-wise, who would give themselves the best cases or the most interesting work while I had to wait 20 years to age into it or climb the ladder. I wanted to go to a place where I could start something that, that I could build that really modeled the U S attorney's office. And the great thing that the U S attorney's office for me was it was a meritocracy it was egalitarian. It was diverse. It didn't matter where you came from, what your name was. didn't even matter how long you'd been there or where you went to school. It was a bunch of people all working together for the same amount of money, which was pretty negligible, but for the same cause, most importantly. And nobody told you had to come in at 9 a.m. and you had to stay till... 6 p.m. You just did it. You just came in at nine and you didn't go home at six. You came, you went home and the work was done. You didn't stop when you were tired. You stopped when you were finished. And nobody told you, you got to fill out a form to go to the doctor or to take a day off. You were trusted to do your job like a mensch, as we would say up here, like a professional, like someone who's dedicated to doing it cleanly and perfectly and ethically and aggressively. And that's what I wanted to start in a law firm. And I spent 10 years in my first firm and three years in my second, basically painting on blank canvases, able to bring in who I wanted to bring in, recruit who I wanted to recruit, hire who I wanted to hire. And I took a Two two firms that didn't have much in the way of big-time white-collar practices, defense trial practices. And I'm proud of what I built at both places, and we had really great trials at both places. And both of those places live on today, obviously, with really strong criminal defense practices.
0: So it sounds like the decision you made to go to the big
1: firm was the right decision for you. It was the right decision for me because I went to places that wanted, to their credit, to build criminal defense practices. It was good for their business. It was good for their practice structure. I think it was good for their bottom line. I would not have wanted to go to a place that had 27 Vinces and Marks. I wanted to go to a place where I could build it.
0: So in my experience, not everyone who spends time in government service representing, in your case, the SEC or the United States in criminal matters, makes that transition to representing people or entities against the federal government. What was that transition like for you? And what advice would you give to those lawyers listening to this who are on the precipice of making that
1: same transition? So what you're fighting for on both sides, is the same thing. You're fighting for what you think is justice and you're fighting for the evidentiary rulings to go your way and the legal rulings to go your way and you're fighting not another person, not your adversary, but their case. You hear prosecutors say, oh, I don't like these defense lawyers. and You hear defense lawyers say, these prosecutors are brutal. The greatest football player of all time, I think most people, maybe the greatest athlete of all time, but certainly a great football player, Jim Thorpe, He played offense and he played defense. And if you're a trial lawyer, you should be able to play offense and play defense. Some sometimes takes a little bit of time for that white hat syndrome to wear off after you leave the government and you realize how much harder it is on the defense side. But I always viewed this as we're all fighting for justice. So what side I'm on can change. And some of the JAG lawyers that I met out in San Diego, they spent periods of time as prosecutors, they spent periods of time as defense lawyers, but they're doing all of it in the name of the United States and justice. That's the way I look at it.
0: So you go from easily wrapping yourself with the flag in a federal courtroom, representing the United States government, your first firm, and you represented Howard Burden in the deep water Horizon disaster. For those who might not be familiar with that or remember it, just tell us briefly what happened in that matter.
1: So you'll recall, perhaps from the actual event, which was in April of 2010, and perhaps from the Marky Mark Wahlberg movie, Mm -hmm. Deepwater Horizon, that a, a well in the Gulf of Mexico called the Macondo blew out, and the rig that was supporting it exploded. As I say, in April of 2010, 11 people were killed, and it became the greatest environmental criminal investigation of all times. And it involved a whole bunch of different companies. I don't know if people will recall this, but every day on CNN, there was a real-time camera that actually showed the millions of gallons of oil spilling into the Gulf, and it caused harm to wildlife and sea life and environmental life. And the Justice Department put together really an all-star team of prosecutors from around the country to investigate it. And the investigation took place out of New Orleans. And yeah, we represented Halliburton. It was In some respects, like being on trial every day, even though it was only an investigation, the government had assembled the best prosecutors, but also scientists and agents who knew about geology and physics and how you drill a deep water two miles beneath the ocean floor. Some people would tell you, Vince, that drilling a deep water well is like threading a needle way down in the depths of the ocean. And other people would tell you that it's harder to do that than to put a man on the moon. And what a privilege to represent a cutting-edge technology company like Halliburton in what was at the time considered to be a global environmental emergency. I'll tell you this, though. A couple of years in New Orleans was more than enough for me. I am not a, I'm not a food guy. I, I don't want to eat remoulade sauce and fried stuff and drink hurricanes. So it was more of a battle for me than some people on my team who <laughs> enjoyed Bourbon Street and all the fine dining in New Orleans. But in some respects, it was like being on trial every day. You were coming in, they would say, we want to hear about this issue. We want to hear about that issue. We want to hear from this witness. We want to hear from that witness. And they would cross-examine you, and you'd have to fight back. And it was like a kind of a all-star on-bank tribunal.
0: So, how do you? You've got this camera that CNN is playing twenty-four-seven. You have people in the political sphere making comments. You've got DOJ leveraging its criminal and civil authorities against you. How do you personally deal with that level of stress? You've already told us you're not pounding hurricanes and. Uh, eating fried oysters. So how does Mark stay grounded during that entire process?
1: Somebody may beat me. I'm going to make them bleed to do it. And to be trial ready, that doesn't just mean having your outlines and your depositions or your 3,500 material, your witness statements, your exhibits ready to go. That means being able to be on and aware for usually eight hours a day. And that's a grind. That's a physical grind. And if you're not able to withstand that and be sharp and think, then you're not going to be a great trial lawyer. So the way I withstood New Orleans was to put all my energy that wasn't devoted to the case into staying active and fit, healthy. So in hindsight... Putting
0: aside that Halliburton wasn't looking for a sole practitioner or a boutique shop to represent it, was it a help or hindrance to be part of this large international law firm representing Halliburton?
1: Great. That's a great question. In that case, it was a complete help, and I couldn't have done that or any of my trials without my teammates wherever I was working. The firm that I was at the time, Halliburton, had an outstanding environmental law section. And so we combined environmental lawyers with the criminal lawyers, with the trial guy, and really had a what I think was a dream team that matched DOJ's all-star team. The way I think about structuring a team and the way I thought about it, structuring it for Halliburton, was to make sure we were trial ready, even though this was such a massive case that it was unlikely to ever move to trial. But the way I structured the team was on the theory that Al Capone used when he was running the mob in Chicago in the 1910s and 20s. He used to say, you get more with a kind word and a gun than you get with just a kind word. I knew we were going to get more with the threat of a trial than we would with just meeting them scientific theory for scientific theory. And ultimately, I think things worked out really well for the company.
0: It sounds like your experience in these two large international firms mirrored each other. And that is you were allowed to build a team that the synergy it created benefited the client I want to talk to the lawyers in those large firms of international, national, large in general, who want to try cases.
1: What advice would you give them today? So I think that clients want to hear that their lawyers have been in the trenches. No. I used to have a supervisor in the Justice Department who would say a trial is a breakdown in the system, right? That's a very maybe Adam Smith's take on things, right? If everybody's interested in their bottom line and everybody's interested in continuing to be productive and efficient market theory, then every case civil and criminal would settle and people would move on. I think clients want to know that if things go bad, there's going to be someone who is capable of performing that sort of emergency surgery in the courtroom—they're going to—they're going to be able to operate at the highest level, and the threat of that, as Capone, I guess, knew, uh, gives clients great comfort. Now, the challenge in a big law firm is that big law firms represent big corporations, and big corporations generally are litigation averse, as they probably should be. One of the beautiful things about the companies and the corporations that I've represented was that they they would draw a line in the sand and they would say, we'll do this, but we will not go there. And if the government wants us to go there or our adversary wants us to go there, we'll fight them in court. And it is hard to get experience in a big law firm, even probably in a mid-sized law firm. I'm a huge fan of going to court to watch. I'm a huge fan, which I still do, by the way. I'm a huge Mm -hmm. fan of taking every single trial advocacy course you can, which I also still do, by the way, because Tiger Woods, he still takes golf lessons. He still works with his coach every day. And that's because even if you're experienced in your profession, or in his case, maybe the greatest ever in his profession, there's always more to learn. So if you can't get your foot into the courtroom, as an associate at a law firm, as a partner at a law firm, go watch and go learn. I'll also say that I never said no to anything. I don't think I've ever said no to, do you want to handle this thing in the courtroom? Do you want to handle that? Can we give you this? Can we give you that? Whether it's a dog of a case, or it's not a moneymaker, or it's complicated, or it's going to interrupt your holidays or your summer I don't think I've ever said no and if you want to build your if you want to build your resume and your experience bank you just don't say no so you
0: open up your current firm Casey Frenchman and you start immediately representing Navy seal Eddie Gallagher and you told us a little bit about that already tell everybody what was Gallagher charged
1: with So Gallagher was charged with a bevy of military crimes, seriously and most importantly, with murder. And to be specific, the murder of a terrorist in Mosul, Iraq.
0: So you get this potential client. You just opened up your own firm. So I've got to assume that this Navy SEAL had a war chest to pay for private
1: lawyers. He did not.
0: How do you open your own firm in New York and go across the country to California when you've got a client who doesn't have the kind of funds necessary to afford that defense? And there's got to be people out there wondering, how do you do that?
1: Yeah. So this is my don't ever say no mantra. To me, this was the opportunity of a lifetime for a trial lawyer, especially a civilian trial lawyer. was trying to build his own business i had some understanding colleagues i i just thought it would be the freaking coolest thing ever (laughs) to go out there and help this guy i saw him on tv i saw his family on tv i got connected with him, and i didn't even think about what would this do to my business i had people back here in new york working on other cases. And I went out to San Diego, first to Coronado, and then downtown San Diego, and checked in with my, my New York team as much as I could. But I was out there for the better part of two months, maybe more. It was a call, and that's all I can say.
0: So your role in that trial has been described as the designated hitters. For non-baseball fans, the designated hitter allows teams to use another player to bat in place of the pitcher. So the pitcher is solely a defensive player, whereas the designated hitter is solely an offensive player. Would you agree with that analogy that you played the designated hitter role?
1: Yeah, I was asked to focus on, I was the last guy in on the team and I was asked to focus on a couple of investigative agents who I think were each important for reasons I'll describe in a second. And then I did, we divided up the closing argument, which is something I'd never done before. And I did the home stretch of the closing, but the two agents were interesting. And I had obviously cross-examined a bunch of agents as a defense lawyer. So I cross-examined the lead NCIS agent for a long time in front of a very excellent and tolerant, uh, judge who gave me a lot of leeway. This was the guy who had conducted the investigation, who had interviewed all the witnesses, who had given instructions to people as to how to conduct the investigation. So I took him through what he did and did not do during the investigation, which I think was pretty critical since he was a lead agent. And I cross-examined an agent who did a search, I remember correctly, of the Gallagher house. She may have analyzed that evidence that came out of the Gallagher house, but that was, the whole search of the house was a very emotional part of the trial because the gallagher kids were home and the gallagher parents were not home so that that was an emotional moment in the trial and then the guy who one of the guys who recruited me to the defense team did the first half of the summation and he was a civilian lawyer but a navy veteran so he spoke he spoke military better than i did and he did about the first i'm guessing i remember an hour and then i did the last hour and closed it down. And it was the eve of July 4th. I think it was July 1st or 2nd. So you've talked about, at least in several positions,
0: building teams of lawyers. And obviously, these aren't lawyers who with from position to position. So for the young lawyers that you've given the advice to, to get on trial teams and to take chances and never say no, how do you work with a team of lawyers you've never worked with before? And what advice would you give them trying to join the team of lawyers that they've never worked with before?
1: That's such an interesting question. One of the great takeaways from the Gallagher trial was getting to work with the civilian and military lawyers that were on our team. For those people who don't know, you can have a military lawyers as a as a defendant in a military court, and you can hire your own civilian lawyers. So Eddie was able to have both. Uh, We bonded really fast. I think the whole team did, probably because of the cause, probably because of the trial, probably because of the odds, probably because of some of the tactics that the prosecutors were engaging in, uh, probably because we were all away from our families and friends and regular offices. When my team travels now and at the prior law firms I was at, we generally... If it's feasible, all camp out together in a hotel, preferably on the same floor. We bring in our own food, and we eat and drink and live together for the course of the for the course of the trial. And who's committed? You can't do it unless you're committed. You can't do it unless you're ready to give it literally everything you've got. You can't do it unless you know it's going to be a struggle. And I think it was Sigmund Freud, I think, I'm not positive, but I think Freud said, one day in retrospect, the years of struggle will strike you as the most beautiful. And yeah. and this is a struggle, this kind of life. It's why not everybody can be a trial lawyer and not every trial lawyer is in the college. Because... I think people who do it and do it the right way find each other.
0: So I want to talk about the Trevor Milton trial. And I know it's in the post verdict motion stage. So I don't expect to get into the nuts and the bolts about it, but generally tell the listeners about Milton and how he found himself the focus of attention by federal authorities.
1: I came into this, the Milton case, on the eve of indictment when he had a really well-known big firm do the investigation or do the pre-indictment work. And they did a hell of a job. I think it hasn't been a great time to um, an entrepreneur who is very successful in in the past few years. There's always a focus for, in the 80s, it was the high-flying investment bankers and Recently, it seems to have been in the 90s and the early 2000s. There's a big focus on corporate fraud or what the government called corporate fraud. And recently, it seems like technology innovators have been in the government's crosshairs. I think that's how Milton got on the map. So during that
0: trial, American greed, which does not sort of pseudo-documentary premiered a special, essentially claiming that Milton was a fraud. The Wall Street Journal aired a podcast season of its Bad Bets series, and that series was essentially devoted into how Milton was a fraud. Do you pay attention to those things during the trial? How do you deal with them? Walk us through that.
1: I try not to pay much attention to the media during trial other than raising with the court where it's appropriate the possibility of juror influence or through the media or the possibility that somebody saw something that's prejudicial. When I was a younger lawyer, I thought that the media was a great tool. I thought that the more you were out there, the more aggressive you were being, the better you were pleading your client's case to the court of public opinion. I have done a complete 180 on that. Now, we, we're we going to handle what kind of motions need to be filed and arguments need to be made about the effects of the media. But in terms of my own practices, I have, as I said, done a complete 180. And actually, I think a prior guest on one of these podcasts, Ben Braffman, gave me a lecture one time. He's a guy I enormously respect. He's a real mentor to me as a trial lawyer. He gave me a big talking to about being too far out there and talking about the cases and the prosecutor or the judge or whatever it is. So I've shut my mouth personally on that stuff, whether I think there are appropriate moments to to say something, and I think there are moments where you're doing nothing except being self-aggrandizing. So I try to keep the blinders on. I don't have time in this. I just don't have time or the psychic energy to pay too much attention to anything other than the evidence. You have to do what you have to do to protect your client. And if that means motions or direing jurors or having the judge give an instruction about not reading the news related to the case, that always has to be done. It shouldn't be done. And if it's not done, it can be reversible. I've heard you
0: describe your law practice in an interesting way. I didn't hear you call it a firm, but a traveling trial team. What do you mean by that? And why is that important?
1: As I say, you can't do this by yourself anymore. But I don't want to do it with 175 or 1,075 people like you do at a big firm. And so I wanted to find the leanest, uh, most facile, most durable, most powerful group of people who are able to go from trial to trial. We are always in either pre-trial or post-trial mode. There's not a lot of downtime for us. And I think the reason I call it a trial team is I have bonded with every trial team I've ever been on, whether I was in the government. I mean, this has to be true for you, Vince. Everybody you've ever tried a case with has become your brother or your sister. Mm -hmm. And you go to a dark place sometimes (laughs) during trial, at least I do. And I've bonded... With everybody I've ever tried a case with as a defense lawyer, as a prosecutor, and you see them now at a reunion, or you get an email from them in the middle of a pandemic or something, and there's just tremendous affection for your teammates, maybe say a remnant of me being a washed up athlete. But I love the idea of this being a team. We did a trial in December of 2021 in Boston, where my firm represented a Harvard professor who was charged with various crimes that grew out of what the government called its China Initiative, which has since been, shall we say, rebranded. And in that trial, I think we put four different lawyers in the courtroom examining witnesses. It was a long, complicated case. Three of my associates and myself, normally, I wouldn't put that many people in, but this team, these people deserved it, and these people earned it, and these people were able to do it as well or better than I. I could do the various witnesses. So I've always thought of the people that are sitting next to you at trial as your teammates. And I didn't want to start a big institution, a law firm. I wanted a trial team.
0: Yeah, I was privileged to recently give a eulogy for a fellow in the college who I had tried some cases with and had called him my brother in the eulogy. A number of people who had tried cases against him and a number of college fellows who didn't do criminal work were in the audience because you're right. I think it is a a fellowship of brotherhood and sisterhood when you're in the well trying cases. Let's talk about preparing for trial. How do you go about that?
1: I go about it almost the same way every time. I don't know if it's the right way or the wrong way, but it's definitely my way. We start out on a whiteboard and we start out in a group. I'm not smart enough to come up with the winning strategy, the winning theme, the winning cross-examination or argument by myself. So we literally sit in a room with a whiteboard and spitball ideas until it starts to come together. And it never comes together all at once. It's always a iterative process. I have to torture myself. I don't know any other way to do it. I have to get every word right. I have to get every evidentiary rule down on a piece of paper so that if my question doesn't work, I I know how to go back at it. To me, this is almost like self inflicted torture because, unlike I think a lot of more talented trial lawyers, I script out everything. I don't necessarily follow the script. But I script out everything, and I I envy those who say, I just do a general outline of my cross, and then I go in there and just follow the outline. I don't do that. I go in there with almost everything scripted out. It never works out the way I think it's going to work out. It It never even comes close. But I have to get it out and onto paper so that I know when I'm in the well, where I'm going, what I need to get to, whatever foundational questions I'll need to get there, whatever point I want to make. Again, if there's anybody out there who has figured out how to do this without it being on paper, you're a better lawyer than I am, because I've looked at every... We're a pretty technologically advanced firm, and we're always trying new presentation software and new organizational software and trial prep software, but at the end of the day, I still haven't found that piece of technology that works as well as the flashcards or the pad in my hand, but I will generally sit with the team and script out every cross, every direct. Everybody always has something to contribute because no two lawyers look at the case the exact same way. I have a very specific way of scripting out what I'm going to impeach somebody with or where I'm going to go if somebody gives me a hard time. The only thing I do really alone are the jury addresses. I do openings and closings on my own. I think that's something that's very personal and something that you can't fake, as you pointed out earlier, you have to be earnest and you have to be authentic and you have to be real but i think there's no cheating your trial prep there's no way to cut the corner there's no way to there's no way to do it without it being painstaking and as i said earlier we don't stop when we're tired we stop when we're done
0: earlier you said you, you didn't want to get into the whole ai bit but i'm going to ask you from your vantage point what do you see as the future evolution of our profession
1: funny because I think I've seen changes from almost from year to year now. If you're doing a couple trials a year, you're seeing advances in technology even from dinosaur institutions like the government. They're becoming m- more innovative and skilled and technological. So, so I, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say that a member of the college who has been another mentor of mine, Jed Rakoff, who's a judge in the Southern District of New York, would say, I've done a couple of trials with him and he would say, you have 11 minutes to do your opening. And I would say 11 minutes, this case is going to go for six weeks and it involves complex mathematical mortgage rates or whatever. And he would say, if you can't explain it in 11 minutes, you know, you're not doing your job. And the biggest single, to answer your question, the biggest single change is If you don't get to it now, the jurors are going to change the channel on you. The jurors are going to jump. And the same way you scroll on your phone and you go from Instagram post to Instagram post or email to email, they're going to go tune you out like that. If you don't grab their attention with the litigation equivalent of a, a TikTok video or whatever catches people's attention, ESPN has it right. They want People want to see the highlights. You don't necessarily want to watch the nine-inning or the extra-inning game. So I think when I was a prosecutor, I was much more prone to lay out every last detail. Now, stick and move like Muhammad Ali. Let's
0: go pivot from that to some unfiltered advice you'd give to groups of lawyers. So first I want to talk about the younger in the profession, so first 10 to 15 years, what advice would you give them?
1: Let your passion burn brighter than your fears, right? Setting foot in a courtroom and standing up there in front of the world, in front of a jury and a judge who may not be the most patient or the kindest, and the media and an audience and your colleagues and your adversaries is some scary stuff. But you got to let your passion burn brighter than your fears. And if you can get through that as a young lawyer, and you can find your voice, and you can find your body, it's awkward to stand in front of people. Do you put your hands in your pockets or on your hips, or do you cross your arms? If you can find your voice and you can find your body, then everything you want is on the other side of that fear. That's the advice I would give a young lawyer starting out. In the trial world.
0: Let's talk about the second group. These are seasoned professionals. They're like you, confident in their skills and abilities. They've established themselves, but there's still a long way to go in the profession. What would
1: you tell them? I would say you got to be all day tough. You got to put your mouth guard in. You got to buckle your chin strap. You got to play all four downs and you got a game to the last because You never know what that jury is thinking or how it's going to turn out or why one objection you made may be the saving grace on appeal if you don't prevail. And just to torture another sports analogy under the umbrella of make sure you keep gaming until the last, a couple years ago at Augusta during the Masters Golf Tournament, Tiger Woods, the aforementioned Tiger Woods, shot at, I think, a 10 on the 12th hole, which is, that's like amateur hour. He then finished his round by going birdie, par, birdie. In other words, after completely blowing one hole, he came back and really killed it on the last six or seven. That's Perseverance. And that's what I would say that the experienced trial or is perseverance, because you just don't know how it's going to turn out. And not every witness is going to be perfect. You're going to have, a, you're going to shoot a 10 on one of those, one of those holes. And let's go to
0: that, that last group, the lawyers who have been practicing for some time, they're in the, getting to the sunset phase of their career. What would you tell them?
1: Send me your clients. <laughs> if you're sunsetting. Interesting. That That's a tough one. One of the things that we used to say on the Gallagher case was never out of the fight. We're never out of the fight. And I think most experienced trialors know that. I think as I enter this stage of my career, I'm not as full of vinegar as I used to be, but I think I'm much better at this than I used to be. I think when you start out as a young trial or maybe even as a mid-season trial where everything feels like it's time for a blood sacrifice and you're going to go in there and nuke the other guys and come out and sing the fight song. I think that this is, in the beginning, you think it's a street fight then maybe in the middle of your career, it becomes a little bit more of a boxing match. And now having been through this so many times, it really is like a, a sweet science. You don't have to hate the other guy. You can hate his case, but you don't hate the other guy. This is an adversarial contentious business, but we don't have to be an adversarial contentious trial lawyer. I think you learn how to do it better when you don't feel like you have to use blunt force.
0: So the last thing I want to touch on is the American College of Trial Lawyers, of course, the organization sponsoring this podcast. Why does the college matter to you? And why should younger lawyers and lawyers who aren't in the college aspire to be inducted
1: into the college. First thing I want to say about the college, Vince, is that it is by far the most humbling experience of my professional career to have been chosen for induction into this group. To me, the college stands for ethical conduct, integrity, professionalism, collegiality, and doing it right. And when I was a young lawyer growing up in the U.S. attorney's office, my dad was the chief judge. And so I went into every courtroom knowing that I had to do it sharper and cleaner and neater than almost everybody else, because otherwise I would get a verbal whooping when whatever judge I was in front of or whatever adversary I was in front of told my dad that I didn't do this or didn't do that or did too much of this or too much of that. So to me, the college and its mission of training or appreciating, lauding lawyers who always try to do it the right way, not just professionally, but personally, and not just in their trial practice, but in their broader ethical practices it's not just about turning out great trial lawyers or recognizing great trial lawyers, but it's about respect for the judiciary and the juries and the rule of law and the access to justice. Those are the things that my father instilled in me. Those are things that the great trial lawyers that I've looked up to have stood for and That's what the college is about. And you can be, you can receive an award from the college because you were a wonderful trial ad teacher, but also because you took on an incredible case that was in the pursuit of justice for the indigent or the unrepresented. I don't think, frankly, that enough young lawyers, especially those in big law firms, are incentivized necessarily to pursue these goals, to pursue these principles, but they should be. You should be recognized for upholding. You you shouldn't need to be in the college to uphold this stuff, but the fact that the college recognizes it ought to tell the broader profession what's really important.
0: Mark, I want to thank you for your time, your insight, and your fellowship in participating in this podcast.
1: It's an honor to talk about it with a lawyer and a guy like you, because there's nobody that comes with more integrity than you, Vince. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested,
0: a podcast by the American College of Trials. The American College of Trial Lawyers is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every inspiring episode.